coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the DNS Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jeanette Hassey. Dr. Hassey is a registered dietitian and manager of transplant nutrition for Baylor Annette C. and Charles C. Simmons Transplant Institute in Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas. Since 2003, she has also served as the editor-in-chief for a widely known, well-respected, peer-reviewed journal, Nutrition and Clinical Practice, or NCP. Prior to NCP, Dr. Hassey served as the editor for our own DNS support line, and she also worked as a nutrition support dietitian at Baylor University Health System. Dr. Hassey, it is an absolute honor to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Christina, it's really my honor to be invited to be here. Thanks. So I put together a few getting to know you type questions that I think will be of interest to our listeners. So let's start with your current role as the manager of transplant nutrition. What initially led you to focus on this very specialized and complex area of practice? Well, Christina, it's interesting because it's not something, I mean, even when I did my internship and started as a clinical dietitian, transplant really had just been getting started. And it wasn't like I woke up one morning and said, gosh, I want to be involved in transplant. What really happened is at Baylor University Medical Center, where I work, I was working as a clinical dietitian. I love nutrition support. That was kind of my thing that I wanted to do. And we did our first uh, liver transplant in December of 1984. It wasn't necessarily planned that the program was going to start that soon. But interestingly, there was a young girl who was waiting for a transplant in Pittsburgh, and they didn't have OR or ICU beds. And we had already hired our transplant uh, director, our surgeon. And so with a lot of things going on, they ended up doing this transplant in December. They brought the patient from Pittsburgh with Dr. Stars and a team. The donor actually came from Canada. And it was this great orchestration of things that allowed this young girl to get transplanted. At the time when I was working, we divided our patient load by floor. I didn't have the transplant floor. So the program really launched in 1985, and the dietitian who had that floor at the time decided to move into another position with management. And I thought, well, you know, we have this new transplant surgeon, Dr. Joran Klintmalm, and he's, he's kind of a mover and a shaker. It might be kind of nice to go along for the ride, but I wasn't quite sure. So I convinced one of the, my other dietitian colleagues, Lori, let's just split this floor and let's see how it goes. Well, it turns out I loved it. She wanted to go more in cardiovascular health. And so I started working with transplant patient number nine, and now we've done over 4,000 liver transplants. And I just really grew to love doing transplant because it was very multidisciplinary. Our chief at the time, Dr. Klipmom, who just retired, was very collaborative and he was very much into whatever the discipline said needed to be done. That's the way it should be done. So it gave me an opportunity to really develop a niche, and I could learn. I learned so much about transplant. Um, the problem was there wasn't much known about nutrition 
Um, so we had to kind of develop that. But that's kind of how I got started in transplant. And then I found that I just loved it. It was something where I could follow patients, not just during their hospitalization, but afterwards, but for years to come. And you you have these relationships with people over the years. One of the patients was our first patient to have a child. And then she came back and her daughter was getting married. And we have annual transplant reunions. And so it's just brought a great connection with patients. But it also, there's been a great connection with all of the people I've worked with. I've been able to work with every transplant fellow who's come through our, our surgical program. So it gives me great reward. I've been able to learn a lot and um, just been able to develop a niche in a place that I never had anticipated would be where I would be for one year, let alone, you know, the last uh, uh, 35 years. Well, and I would imagine in a patient situation like getting a transplant, you you really can see the impact that good nutrition can play in their in their care continuum. Absolutely, especially I mean we work with all types of organ transplants, but patients who have liver disease sometimes you can find you can't find patients who are more profoundly malnourished than some of these patients, and where their life or death really revolves around their nutrition status. Uh, and so nutrition is a very key part of, of transplantation in general. So full disclosure, I did reach out to a few of my DNS colleagues to ask what they were most interested in or curious to learn about you during this episode. And one of the comments that I received was, and I'll, I'll quote this, um, she did groundbreaking research in the area of liver transplant nutrition. And it would be interesting to hear from her on how she has seen our knowledge of transplant nutrition evolve. So the person went on to say that they remember that surgeons wouldn't allow enteral feedings, whether it was oral or tube, via tube, in liver transplant patients for almost a week. And that your research helped show us that early feeding in this population was safe and effective. So first, I'll say thank you for breaking that glass ceiling for the rest of us. And second, what are your thoughts on how you've seen transplant nutrition evolve over the years? I think it's evolved in so many ways. I think, first of all, that there's just overall now, I remember having to say nutrition is important, nutrition is important. Now it's just people know that nutrition is a very important part of that patient's progression through their transplant phases. And it's part of the selection criteria for our transplant selection committees. So it's the, the, the knowledge that nutrition is important is now widespread throughout the transplant community. In fact, so much so that CMS developed guidelines many years ago saying that a dietitian is a critical part of the transplant program and that a dietitian must be involved in all phases of transplant for the patients. That's an actual regulation. I think that as the recognition for nutrition has increased, so has the role of the transplant dietitian, not only in what they do, but the number of dietitians who are involved in transplant. I remember when I started in 1985, and there was nothing known about transplant nutrition. What do you do? How do you assess the patient? What do you do with them after that point? And I found out that there were two dietitians who had also started about the same time. One was Sarah DeCecco at Mayo Clinic, and another one was Margaret 
O'Hara in UCLA. And I reached out to them, but particularly with Sarah, Sarah and I are still friends and we still collaborate today. And I remember just being on the phone saying, this is what I do. What do you think? She's like, oh, great. That's what I do. And I'd ask her questions. She'd say, this is what I do. And it just validated that what we were doing was creating transplant nutrition and evolving. What's also very interesting is we have this whole niche now of several hundred transplant dietitians in our own little organization. And this past year, we actually were able to develop, um, this was kind of driven through our NATCO transplant uh, dietitian work group, uh, but in particular, Dan Pilock, who uh, we developed a certified clinical transplant dietitian credential. So now we had, I think, somewhere around 70 people apply and get credentialed in April, and then another group got credentialed in October. So it's just, again, showing that this is a specialized area where dietitians can really grow in that. I think also there's been a lot of evolution in research and technology where we were talking about in doing subjective global assessment when we started, now there are different technological breakthroughs where you can look at different things like skeletal muscle index using CT scans. There's other technology coming out. And now it's not just the dietitians talking about it, it's about the whole team talking about it. So as you were progressing through your career and you had this you know, these various research studies come out and the new technology come out. Did you find that this information was well received by, you know, other members of the team, like, like the transplant surgeons um, and other folks, or did you have some challenges getting them on board with the information? I think there's always challenges. It's how you tend to overcome the challenges. And I was very blessed to be in a place again where the leader of our program is very collaborative. And he would say, if Jeanette says this is what needs to be done, let's do that. I know that was not always the case in other centers around the United States. And, and, and it may not be to that extent in other places, but I was blessed to be in a place where uh, we were able to kind of break some grounds. You, you mentioned that study looking at nutrition support. Well, when I started, I didn't even know how to assess these patients. Because again, back in the day, we were looking at percent of weight loss, transferrin and albumin levels, which we know are not valid these days. And I remember one of my uh, colleagues at work said, hey, have you seen this article on SGA? It just came out in, you know, JPEN. It was that paper by Desky. So I'm like, okay, this is what I need to do for transplant patients. But first, we need to validate that it's useful in transplant patients and then we have integrator reliability. So that actually led to my master's thesis looking at that. And then it led to the next thing of, well, if we know patients are malnourished, what effect does it have on outcomes? So then we were able to show that patients who are malnourished had poor outcomes. And then that led to, well, how can we improve their nutrition or treat the patient so it'll um, improve outcomes? And we did two studies. One study was looking at providing nutrition support in patients with encephalopathy before transplant and what that would happen. And then the one that you mentioned, uh, giving enteral nutrition to patients after transplant. And I really based my study on Dr. Cut's kind of pivotal paper looking at trauma patients. And if you did early enteral feeding, you could reduce complications and infection rates. So I put together this research protocol and I submitted it to the IRB 
And I remember, Christina, I got it back and I said, this is a very nice research proposal, Miss Hassey, but you don't have a terminal degree, so you can't be the principal investigator on the study. And I said, well, I'll show you, I'll go get my, my terminal degree. And that's when I enrolled to go back to, to graduate school to get my PhD. But then we had a lot of support again from the team to do that prospective randomized controlled trial, putting feeding tubes in the patients at the time of surgery. And we did find that it made a, a difference in reducing infectious rates. So that research, um, I think I finished that around 93. And then shortly after that, all of our patients had feeding tubes placed at the time of transplant. We've altered that protocol a little bit now today that because our lengths of stay are so short that we're trying to put the feeding tubes in a more focused group of people. But now that research has led into more things like it's not just about nutrition, there's the sarcopenia, there's the frailty. How can we marry those things together and treat them all to improve the outcomes of the patient? So the entire process of how we think about taking care of patients had to start from nothing to what we're doing now. And I don't think we're stopping now. I think we're always continuing to look for better ways to be able to treat our patients. And do you find that the key learnings and the, the research that's coming out, is it only specific to liver transplant patients or does that same information apply to, you know, like kidney pancreas, for example? So I think all of the things that we have found is that malnutrition, frailty affects transplants. It doesn't matter if it's a heart transplant, a lung transplant, a liver transplant. There's just pox of patients within those transplant worlds who tend to have more profound malnutrition and frailty. And I would say liver transplant, since the liver is so involved in the metabolic processes of the body, that it's, it, it's very key in the role of nutrition. So I see it more in those patients. Occasionally I see it in the, the kidney and the pancreas patients, but not to the same frequency. You also see that a lot of times in some of the lung patients. I know uh, Linda Ulrich up in Indiana, they were doing some work with prehab in their patients we're having lung transplants. So it does carry across, and it, and it could be any chronic disease state, honestly, but it's just that in transplant, we're looking at patients who have end-stage liver disease or end-stage organ disease in general, and there's no more treatment for them, and they're kind of at the end of the line. And so you tend to see more profound conditions of malnutrition or nutritional involvement in patients who are that sick. So I want to switch gears and talk about your role as the editor with NCP. So how did, how did you get to the point in your career where you were working with, you know, really such a widely known and, and respected publication? Well, it's really interesting because I remember when I had to do my senior paper in undergraduate school that my advisor sat down and walked me through it word by word, line by line, because I needed work on my writing. The same thing when I did my thesis, my advisor helped me with that. So I learned a lot from them. So I can't say that I was innately a great writer, but I learned a lot from them. And also when I first started writing papers, we had a, an editor at Baylor who we could use, and she taught me a lot. And then um, I had the opportunity, I'd been involved in DNS, and I had the opportunity to take over as the editor of Support Line. And um, I said, yes, I'll do this, but I need some help. And so Mary Russell was my partner, and we worked on, on Support Line for the next several years. 
and I really learned a lot about basic publishing and working with authors and and working through the whole publication process. It was really because of that that launched me into NCP. And because of my work with NCP, then I was recommended to apply for the open position of editor for NCP. And uh, when I showed up to do the interviews, I remember Ken Cutts was the the chief of the nominating committee who was doing the interviews. And when I saw some of the other candidates sitting there, I thought, oh, there's no way I will ever get this position. And I actually became very good friends with one of the people who was who was also applying at the same time. And, and we've remained good friends. But I got the job. And I just remember um, sitting at dinner one night and I got a phone call. And it was Dr. Cutts announcing that I was selected as the next NCP editor. And I was just kind of floored by that moment, but very proud and very excited about the challenges with it. And it has really become like my third child that we were able to continue to work with a lot of different people to grow NCP. And I think I've always thought about NCP as an editor. I'm just the conductor. You know, when you have a great orchestra, you have people who compose the music, you have your audience, you have the people playing in the orchestra to make everything go to, go well. And as the editor-in-chief, I am just the conductor. I have great associate editors. Uh, I try to hand-select the people that I know are going to do the best job, and they have been doing a wonderful job. We work with a great staff at the Aspen um, office, as well as with our publisher. And then we have people who want to author. We started out, when I started out with NCP, about 80% of our articles were solicited. I might be looking at, you know, getting, you know, 80 to 150 articles a year. We've already exceeded 535 articles submitted this year, probably 85% of which are unsolicited articles. And a lot of it has to do with technological changes and how everything is now online. But just seeing NCP grow, um, with all the people who've contributed as editors, authors, editorial board, I have just gotten to be the conductor and watch it grow and and see it come to fruition. Well, and I have to say that I think one of the highlights of my career as a bedside clinician was when I had a manuscript accepted to NCP. And you know, you you explain it so eloquently, but I'll tell you on the on the writer's end, it is so incredibly challenging. And you know, I remember I think it was maybe my third or fourth revision of my manuscript. I went to my my director at the time and said, I just think I'm gonna give up. I don't think they're ever gonna publish my manuscript. And she just smiled at me and said, You're so close and you've done so much work and this is such good content just submit one more revision. And, you know, thank goodness that that last revision was the last revision and it was accepted. And that is just, it's such a rewarding experience when you get to that point where you can see all of your hard work in print and you know that you're helping other people. It's just such a cool experience. Well, Christine, I want to just add to that two things. I had papers um, in the beginning of my career that were near that end point, and I didn't re didn't turn it back in after the revisions. And shame on me for doing that. 
But somebody somewhere along the way told me, you're only as good as your worst paper. So to me, that meant reviewer comments as many times as you have to review it. And sometimes you think, wow, this is really um, getting to be a chore. or Maybe this comment is petty or it's making your paper better. And it's a gift. And so sometimes when authors get discouraged, I want them to think, this is a gift. You're getting these people to give you these comments while you can make the changes on your paper. So the best you, your best paper is going to be out there. And it's going to be embraced rather than criticized because you took the time to listen to feedback and make it the best paper that you could. I think you do make a great point because, you know, we all know there are so many critics and, you know, now in, in the era of social media, it's really easy for somebody to push out their opinion, whether or not it's, it's factual, we can still push out our opinion. So you're right. Having that scrutiny in the front and having the best pop possible paper get pushed out into the field is, is really what's in the best interest of everyone. So looking back at your last, you know, 17 or so years in editing, what has been your most memorable publication? You know, Christine, I've kind of thought about that as we were hitting this 35th year mark, and I've been editor for 17 years, which is hard to believe. And I was going to say at first, it was my very first one that came out to really see that it would happen, but I'm like a parent, and this is my third child, and you know, I love my children equally. I'm not going to say my daughter above my son or my son and my, my daughter, they're different. And the same thing with the NCP journals. I read every article and I learn so much from all of them. And I honestly can't say that there was one issue that I liked better than another. They're all important to me and they all have content to provide that is practical, that is science-based and is going to help our patients. So, I think I'm going to stick with that, that they're all equally important to me. Well, and I think that is one of the, the benefits of, of NCP and of support line is that we cover such a variety of topic topics within the clinical nutrition realm that there really is something for everyone. And as, as you grow and evolve in your career, you know, that's still your go-to resource because there's going to be something that sparks your interest. Absolutely. I'm just going to give an example here. So the other day, somebody was asking in one of our clinics, they had a patient and they were wondering if they should do prophylactic, um, you know, clogs after down the feeding tube to keep it unclogged. I'm like, you know what, there's an article in NCP about that. So it just helps you to be able to say, I read that, I can apply that. Uh, and in this case, the study didn't show that it was helpful. It certainly wasn't harmful, but it didn't really reduce clogging. But I could remember that paper and tell my colleague who could look it up and apply it in their situation. It's always nice when you have clinical opinions and you know that it's backed up, but to be able to hand somebody a printed copy and say, and here's more detail of what I was just explaining to you. You know, I think that's, that's always a good position for us to be in. So I understand that you will be at the 2021 Aspen Nutrition Science and Practice Conference along with the JPEN editor. So can you give us a sneak peek into the content you'll be covering at that session? For this year, we are just going to have 
kind of meet the editor where you can have a conversation or we may put up some specific topics. Last year, we actually did a whole session um, in the previous year looking at different things from the perspective of the editor and the publisher. So this is going to be more of an informal type of session this year where you can, um, we can either bring forth topics. We did this last, the, the two years ago, it was kind of meet the editor session where we just were able to meet people in the bookstore and have conversations with them. So we're going to try to see how we can re reenact some of that in a virtual way. I think that's a great opportunity, especially for someone who is considering their first manuscript but hasn't taken that next step yet. So that's a great way for them to kind of get more information to get started. So kind of along that line, what advice would you give dietitians who are just getting started in publishing? So I think the first thing is to find a mentor. And that mentor may be somebody who works in your department, or maybe it's not somebody. Or maybe it's a dietitian in another center. Believe me, I have lots of mentors in our DNS world who have been very valuable to me along the way in my career. Take advantage of those people who are willing to share and, and help you grow. Um, and then I think the other thing is it's important to kind of start small. You know, don't start with a big randomized controlled trial. Start with a case study or start with a QI project. Take advantage, I think you mentioned uh, when we were speaking earlier about the DNS Writers Mentoring uh, Group. Um, use those kinds of resources to help you. And then maybe you even start out by assisting somebody you can help gather data, and then that can grow into something else, either research. And then work with somebody who's published before and, and be a second or a third author and learn from that process. Uh, write articles for support line and then grow that into other articles for other kinds of journals. And I think I would add to that too. And again, speaking from my own experience, you know, expect feedback and expect that you're not going to get published overnight. So be open to that feedback and, you know, really, like we said, take it as an opportunity to strengthen your, your manuscript before it does get published. And I would say as an editor, I always tell people there's two ways to approach this. You know, there are different hierarchies of journals. And if you think you want to publish in the highest level, you know, and you think you can, then go for it. But if that doesn't get accepted, then you can work your way down. Or if you're like me, I probably wanted to get my feet wet and feel more comfortable starting at something where I know I could submit something that could get published and gain confidence and work my way up. But yeah, use the people around you, know that you're going to have to revise, that's the name of the game. I could name on my hand in my 17 years, probably the number of papers who have not needed revision. All papers need revision for the most part. So my last question, looking back at your own career, is there anything that you would do differently? So I think that's a really interesting question. And one of the things that I think about is one of my favorite verses is from Romans, and it says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I've always had to try to live by the mantra of, of prioritizing my life. God first, family second, work third. And when I work, I work really hard, but I'm not going to sacrifice the other two things for my work. So from that perspective, I wouldn't change what I've done. And I also feel like, why worry about what I could have done? I like to think more about what can I do now? 
what am I doing that I could improve upon now? I can't change the past. So how can I focus on working to make things better in the future or to maybe help raise up other people who are going to take my place once I'm no longer doing this? Dr. Hassey, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today. And, and thank you for all that you are doing to ensure that the latest and greatest nutrition research is at our fingertips. Thank you so much, Christina. I'm so proud of what DNS has done and stand for and all of the wonderful dietitians that I have met over my career in this group has really shaped me as a person and as a professional and really influenced and impacted my life. And so I encourage anyone who's listening who hasn't been involved in DNS is just to volunteer. You will gain so much more than you will give. It will be very much worth it. And I appreciate what you're doing, Christina, with these podcasts. I enjoy listening to them as well as participating today. Oh, well, thank you. We really appreciate all of your kind words. So listeners, if you are interested in volunteering or to learn more about publishing in a peer-reviewed journal like NCP, please visit our website at dnsdpg.org and you certainly check out our Writers Mentoring Program. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.